You're listening to the Carnegie Tsinghua China and the World podcast, a series of conversations with Chinese and international experts on China's foreign policy, international role, and China's relations with the world, brought to you from the Carnegie Tsinghua Center, located in Beijing. I'm Paul Hanley, the director of the Carnegie Tsinghua Center, and I'll be your host. Today we're thrilled to be joined by my friend and one of the leading scholars on China and international security, Dr. Taylor Fravel. Taylor is an associate professor of political science and, and a member of the security studies program at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Taylor is the author of Strong Borders, Secure Nation, Cooperation and Conflict in China, China's Territorial Disputes, while his edited volumes include Rethinking China's Rise, A Reader, and China and East Asian Order. A reader. He is currently completing a book length study of major change in China's military doctrine since 1949, entitled Active Defense Explaining the Evolution of China's Military Strategy. Taylor, thank you very much for joining us today. Taylor, I want to begin with the 18th Party Congress,、uh, which took place, as you know, November of last year.、Uh, at the meeting, Chinese leaders called for China to become a major maritime power by, by developing its maritime resources, protecting the ocean environment. Could you start by describing what you see as China's regional maritime strategy in recent years and who have been the main actors and how effective has it been? Great, thanks, Paul.、Uh, I'm not sure there, there is a maritime strategy. <laughs>、uh, there, there have been sort of、uh, documents put out by agencies such as the State Oceanic Administration、uh, on maritime development,、uh, but I think they're actually probably in the process of working out the strategy.、Mm -hmm. But what they've done to date, I think, has been to enhance their overall、uh, maritime capabilities. And, and when I refer to maritime capabilities, I'm not speaking about just naval forces, but in particular,、uh, civilian maritime law enforcement agencies. So, one big development in this regard was the decision, which had been debated for years, to merge、uh, four of the so called Five Dragons into one group,、uh, now known as the Chinese Coast Guard,、uh, mm -hmm. and placing it under the State Oceanic Administration. But in interestingly enough, also giving、uh, the Ministry of Public Security a role.、Mm. And my understanding is that relationship has not yet been、uh, fully worked out. And so,、uh, China's been developing its ability to sort of govern. The seas adjacent to China、uh, by, by developing these maritime、uh, actors.、Mm -hmm. uh, but、uh, it's not clear to me that there's necessarily a, a full fledged、uh, strategy for how to do this、uh, because、mm -hmm. um, what we've seen in, in recent years is, is uh, uh, conflicts and incidents involving uh, these uh, maritime actors, particularly、uh, before the establishment of the Coast Guard. Incidents involving the、uh, vessels from the, the Bureau of Fisheries Administration and incidents involving、uh, vessels from China Marine Surveillance.、And、so, this to me suggests that, they, that sort of the development of capabilities has、uh, outpaced the development of a strategy for the use of those capabilities. And I think perhaps now we're seeing through the, the decision to centralize those actors under one body a, a greater effort to, to, to produce a strategy, but we'll have to see、yeah. how it evolves over the coming years. Great. Taylor, you were one of the first to note a change in China's neighbor periphery strategy, diplomacy, under President Xi. He seems, President Xi seems to recognize that some of China's most assertive actions in the East and South China Sea has, have caused some diplomatic problems for China、um, with Japan many, and with many Southeast Asian countries and、uh, have in many ways hurt China's own interests. At the first ever work forum, Um, periphery diplomacy, October 24th and 25th, President Xi outlined a new strategic approach upgrade, acceleration, and add power to relations with neighbors, enhance political goodwill, 
deepen regional economic integration, increase China's cultural influence, and improve regional security cooperation to, Chinese to China's neighbors as part of its overall strategy to realize the rejuvenation of the Chinese nation and maintain a peaceful and stable external environment conducive to domestic economic reform. There's been a lot of discussion here in Beijing about the importance of this speech. Can you help us understand your view on this new strategic approach to China's periphery diplomacy? And what other signs has President Xi given that China's policy is evolving? I think that the, the regional uh, diplomatic work forum was unprecedented. It's the first time, at least uh, publicly acknowledged first time, that such a forum has been held. Mm -hmm. uh, so in the past, China has held uh, general work conferences on foreign affairs that would include great powers, the periphery, the developing world. But this was the first time that the periphery was sort of highlighted mm -hmm. for um, uh, highlighted for attention, and the entire Politburo Standing Committee attended. Right. So this means wow. uh, that it had sort of the full support of China's top leaders, and was not simply a conference conducted within sort of the foreign affairs system alone, but rather yeah. reflected an effort to coordinate across systems. Um, so although it was unprecedented in that sense, I actually don't think it's a new strategy. I think they're trying mm. to revitalize an old strategy uh, that had um, um, not received uh, enough attention or that had sort of uh, been overtaken by events uh, due to the growth of Chinese capabilities in the last few years. Mm -hmm. And so from the late 1990s to the early 2000s, China talked a lot about pursuing a, a good neighbor policy. Uh, and I think that's that's how I, I would read sort of the totality of the peripheral work um, a forum because the, the sort of main headlines when it was announced in the uh, People's Daily was uh, to maintain a peaceful, stable external environment, um, which seems to suggest that uh, China's environment had was becoming unpeaceful or less stable, and thus uh, China needed to take actions to rectify that situation. And there would be many factors at play here, but uh, one clearly important set of factors would be Chinese assertiveness uh, in these maritime disputes, which collectively have worsened ties with many states in the region and created an opportunity for the United States and other major powers like India and Japan to assert themselves uh, at, at China's expense. And so my read of, the, of this uh, work forum was, uh, in part, an effort to redress um, problems that Chinese foreign policy had created for itself. Hmm. Um, it had backfired. And that's really important, because uh, an, an, an acknowledgment that your policy is not working right. uh, is, is right. the first step uh, uh, towards uh, better mm -hmm. policy. Mm -hmm. uh, and over the past few years, you know, those of us sort of observing China from afar have wondered, you know, is, is there a feedback loop here? Is China, does yeah. China understand that uh, its efforts to assert itself, even if it views these assertions as, as defensive and justified, is nevertheless backfiring and mm -hmm. sort of uh, creating a worse environment for China uh, to pursue uh, its own economic development? I think the, this uh, peripheral work conference was a recognition that overall uh, policies have, have uh, been suboptimal and greater attention needs to be placed on the periphery. Mm. Importantly, I would note that uh, maritime issues was not referenced once mm. uh, in the summary that Xinhua released of Xi's uh, remarks at the conference. And what that indicates to me is that uh, less of an emphasis is going to be placed on a so-called sort of rights defense or wage trend mm. in the maritime domain. It doesn't mean it's going to disappear entirely, but that's going to have to be balanced against maintaining stability. Mm -hmm. and I, and I think that's an important uh, development and actually can be traced back to the, the maritime uh, power work conference uh, mm. that you, you referenced in your in, in your question, which occurred mm -hmm. over the summer, and which uh, for the first time Xi Jinping contrasted sort of the need to sort of maintain uh, China's maritime rights or defend these rights with maintaining stability or weight win. Mm -hmm. um, and 
that was sort of characterized as an overall two overall situations that China needed to sort of handle properly, and mm -hmm. and that reflects the fact that these two um, impulses in Chinese foreign policy are working at cross purposes with each other and need to be readjusted mm -hmm. accordingly. So it's too soon to say where. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. where the regional strategy is going to go. And of course, uh, one immediate reaction was this cheap talk. It's easy to say that China right. wants to improve its regional security environment. And so we have to see uh, what will happen. Uh, but I, I think we can't judge this by what happens in the next week or two weeks or three weeks, but what happens in the next two or three years. Because that's how strategy unfolds in China mm -hmm. over years and not, not days and weeks. One quick follow-up to that. What, one of the things you hear Chinese scholars talking about with regard to the October 24th speech uh, is this what appears to be a new effort by China to categorize to a certain degree uh, their relationships with certain countries in the region. Countries that are what they say pro-China or leaning towards China will be treated in one way and the implication of course is those that are causing trouble for China might be treated in a different way. And I have heard over the last few weeks uh, scholars talking about this as one potential change in the uh, that was expressed during President Xi's speech, and I wonder if you could comment on that. That's an interesting observation. I, that wasn't a message that I took away from the speech, but I only was able to read the summary, and I haven't um, yeah. been to China since the speech was uh, delivered and haven't had a chance to talk to people uh, in greater detail. I think up until now, one does see uh, that kind of uh, distinction in Chinese foreign policy. And so if we look at China-Japan relations, China's uh, basically refusing to hold unconditional talks um, at either the, the foreign minister level or at, at the presidential premier level uh, with Japan until Japan makes some kind of expression uh, regarding uh, the fact uh, that the Senkaku Diaoyu Islands are in fact disputed territory, which Japan until now has been unwilling to do uh, because of its, its, its perspective on its claims in the region. Uh, likewise, you see China um, at least at the diplomatic level, kind of placing a freeze on ties with the Philippines. And so Foreign Minister Wang Yi has uh, met at least once with every uh, foreign minister from ASEAN except for the Philippines. Uh, and so it's clear that, uh, uh, that the Philippines is being isolated to some degree. And I guess what we have to see, or what we have to do, is to see how this unfolds going forward. So after this uh, big work conference, are we going to see this sort of continued division in how China treats neighbors, or are we going to see an effort by China to sort of uh, quarantine these territorial disputes and prevent them from uh, uh, harming the overall uh, development of bilateral ties? And this would be what I call the India model. Mm. Uh, so China and India have this long-standing border dispute. It was, um, uh, they fought a war over it in 1962, yet in the last sort of 10 to 15 years, we've seen this flowering uh, and pretty robust development of bilateral ties. Uh, despite the presence of this dispute. So the dispute can be kind of put in a box. Uh, it can still be uh, uh, talked about, and, but, it, but sort of levels of tension in the dispute are not going to hinder the overall development of relations. Mm -hmm. And that would be one way forward, at least with China, uh, I'm sorry, with Japan and with the Philippines, kind of uh, put these disputes in a box uh, and, and then uh, develop relations in other areas, especially the economic area. Mm. So let me dig deeper a little bit into what you're just talking about. There's been debate here among Chinese academics uh, in recent years about the effectiveness of Deng Xiaoping's strategy of shelving sovereignty mm -hmm. disputes and pursuing joint development, which you're just alluding to. And I want you to talk, if you could, specifically to that. Does Deng's strategy approach to these issues still have uh, credibility uh, today 
and among the current leadership in your view? Uh, the short answer is yes, uh, because there is an, an alternative. So if we look at Xi Jinping's speech at this maritime work conference back in, in the summer of 2013, he very clearly at the end of that speech endorsed Deng Xiaoping's approach uh, to maritime disputes. And the reason why I think he did so is that there isn't a better alternative unless mm -hmm. you want to try to uh, uh, act very aggressively and coercively to compel the opposing states in these disputes to accede to China's demands. And so uh, recognizing that these disputes fundamentally are very difficult to solve, um, if you're going to have these disputes, then the best uh, approach probably is to, um, uh, as much as you can, set them aside uh, and pursue joint development. Now, it turns out that setting aside the disputes is much easier yeah. than pursuing joint development. Right. And so I think where uh, Deng uh, Xiaoping's policy has been criticized by many uh, Chinese scholars and analysts is the fact that there hasn't been much joint development desp mm -hmm. despite the setting aside. And in fact, the setting aside of these disputes al allows uh, the opposing uh, states to pursue unilateral development and also creates incentives for China to pursue unilateral uh, development. So uh, actually achieving something in joint development turns out to be much harder than Deng uh, probably mm -hmm. uh, expected, although I think the primary um, focus of Deng's sort of guidance here was to simply not uh, let the disputes become uh, the center of bilateral relations with states with which China has disputes, and rather to uh, deepen diplomatic and economic ties despite the presence of these disputes. And you can only do that if you set them aside. Mm -hmm. So what we see with Japan and the Philippines right now is that the disputes really have become the center of relations, and, and that's harming um, China's ability to, to, to move forward. Let me move to the uh, one area where you've seen some progress as of late uh, is this issue of completing a code of conduct for the South China Sea. And I wanted to ask you what you think the prospects there are, and then to, answer, to, 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 to talk about uh, where America's interests lie here. Because I noticed some debate in the United States whether or not it would be in America's interest for there to be a code of conduct completed. And I wonder if you could comment on that. Sure, let me take the second uh, part of your question first. My own view, my own judgment would be that it is in America's interest because the effect of a code, if it was reached, would be to uh, cap the potential for escalation. Uh, and that serves uh, the American interest in maintaining peace and stability in the region. And, and it also um, basically removes one potential opportunity for the U.S. to become more closely involved in disputes in which China is a major claimant, which in turn uh, might make China's disputes a more important, or, or might increase the role of China's disputes in U.S.-China relations, which I don't think would be positive for that relationship. So I, I do think it's in America's interest. Uh, that, that would be my judgment. Uh, regarding the status uh, of those talks and the ability for a code to be reached, I'm I'm still pretty skeptical. Mm. Uh, China has agreed to hold consultations, uh, which was sort of a precursor to formal talks or negotiations. Uh, so China has not yet uh, said it will negotiate a code of conduct, uh, in part because it wants, I think, to uh, see um, some movement by the Philippines over Scarborough Shoal, uh, and that's unlikely to happen because of the arbitration that's ongoing. Nevertheless, I think China, uh, because it um, ha has recognized how its policies in the South China Sea uh, have backfired in recent years, uh, does see value in at least talking about a code, uh, and, and that in turn I think can be used to uh, sort of restrain Chinese behavior to some degree. Uh, because if you're, if you're serious about talking about a code, then you're not going to necessarily be as willing to take actions that might be clearly seen as violating such a code. Um, but achieve, successful achievement of a code also uh, requires that ASEAN um, have a united position. And 
that cannot be taken for granted, uh, especially at the moment the Philippines seems more willing uh, to pursue a code uh, that um, may be more detailed or more binding than some of the other states. Uh, and so if there's not ASEAN agreement on the content of a code, uh, no unified ASEAN position with which uh, to present to China, then that's going to be not another obstacle. So China may be not willing to rush the net, so to speak, on, on, on achieving a code of conduct, although it's willing to talk about it. And ASEAN might not be able to come up with a joint position. So what, what we may see in the coming years is it, uh, an, an increased frequency of consultations without mm. uh, necessarily anything being produced, but I still think that's better than having no consultations mm. uh, at all. Taylor, my, my last question uh, is uh, related to the uh, third uh, plenum. Uh, President Xi presented a broad outline for his economic reform blueprint for the next decade, uh, and within that he announced two new bodies. Uh, one uh, which uh, will deal with implementing the reforms, and the second uh, was the creation of a national security coordinating mechanism, uh, which many say uh, could be modeled on a U.S.-type national security council, whereas, you know, I worked. So I'm great interest in this. But I'd like to ask you specifically related to the issues that we've been discussing this morning. Uh, how do you think that the national security coordinating mechanism uh, will affect the uh, China's uh, strategy in the Asia-Pacific, uh, the territorial issues, the maritime issues that we've been discussing here? Thanks, Paul. I think that it's too early to tell, right? Mm -hmm. uh, because we don't have any details about what the National Security Commission or the State Security Commission, depending upon your preferred mm -hmm. uh, translation of Guajia, uh, uh, will do. Um, my read, when it was announced at least, is that it uh, was going to focus more on internal threats uh, to China's national security, uh, and by that I mean the security of the Communist Party, and the external dimensions of those internal threats, as opposed to focusing primarily on uh, the on external threats and questions of crisis management. And so while the latter are really important and China needs a crisis management mechanism, I, I'm not sure the National um, Security Commission or the State Security Commission is going to be the body that will uh, conduct such crisis management. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it was... It, in the plenum decision or the plenum resolution, it was discussed in the section on improving social governance, uh, not in the section on foreign affairs and not in the section on defense. It was also not labeled as a a, cent a central national security commission. It wasn't a Zhongyang Guojia Anchenweiyanhui, which suggests it might be uh, a government body under the state council or coordinating coordinating agencies within the state council. Mm -hmm. uh, but if it has uh, government rank, it's going to be uh, hard for China, for, hard within the Chinese system to coordinate actions that involve the PLA, which are, are at the, the level of the center, right? To uh, engage in effective crisis management, you would need to uh, have some effort to coordinate with the PLA. And to coordinate with the PLA, you would this body would have to have uh, sufficiently high rank in the party mm -hmm. that um, mm -hmm. it would be able to do so. Mm -hmm. and. We've, we've received no indications yet that it's going to have uh, high rank in the party. In fact, mm -hmm. it, it appears that it's going to be a, a government or a state body. And that means that coordination with the PLA is yeah. going to continue to be very difficult. So I'm not optimistic. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I don't think um, that describing it as a National Security Council has been, has been very common in, in the Western media since it was announced is actually very helpful because it, it, it suggests this body is going to have a primarily an external focus or an external orientation, whereas I think the primary focus is going to be internal. Well, thank you for that. I, uh, I agree with you. It's too early to tell. Uh, I also agree I, that uh, the description of it as a, a U.S.-type National Security Council is um, premature. 
I don't think people know. The one thing I would note, which is interesting, is in my discussions here with Chinese scholars, those that have been advo advocating for a long time a national security coordinating mechanism for foreign policy issues will tell you that this has been created for foreign policy reasons. And those who have not been advocating that will tell you, at least in my experience, that it's more for internal security. So I think it depends, you know, where you are on this issue and what your own views are. But I think we will hopefully see as things move forward how this develops. And there's been some confusion or perhaps uh, some controversy in the system as we've seen the English translation, as you noted, has changed uh, over uh, several days and uh, which in the Chinese has remained the same, but the English has changed, which indicates some confusion and uh, we'll see how things develop. But thank you very much for being with us today. That's it for this edition of Carnegie Tsinghua China and the World podcast. If you'd like to listen to previous episodes of the Carnegie Tsinghua China and the World podcast, you can find those along with a summary of each interview on the Carnegie Tsinghua website at www.carnegietsinghua.org. I encourage you to explore our site and see the work of all our scholars at the Carnegie Tsinghua Center. Thanks for listening and be sure to tune in next time.